Researchers say that in the 1940s, about 65% of young Americans would have identified themselves as Christians and could articulate the basic tenets of the Christian faith and tell you about the truth of Jesus and his gospel. A few generations later, in the 1960s, that number dropped down to about 35%. Researchers tell us that today, the millennial generation, that is those who were born between 1980 and 2000, that number has plummeted still further to about 15%. All right, so 65%, a few generations later, 35%. In our generation, 15%. What that means is that out of 80 million or so young people in our nation, 70 million or so have not trusted in Christ and do not know him and his gospel and his salvation. That makes our generation the largest mission field in our nation for over a century. Okay, now I don't know how much stock you put into statistics like those or studies like that or research like the one you've just heard, but I think what is unmistakable is that there is a trend in our land that as generations pass, the church loses more and more of its children. Right? I think it is an unmistakable observation that the trend is with each passing generation, less and less of the church's children adhere to and adopt the faith of their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. Now here's the question. How could that be? How could it be, especially considering the age that we live in? We live in an age where Christianity is more accessible than it has ever been in human history. We live in an age, especially in our land, where Christianity can be reached and accessed with greater ease than perhaps it has ever been. How is it that with each passing generation, less and less of the children of professing Christians become themselves professing Christians. Remember the age that we live in. We live in the age of the mega churches and mega budgets and mega programs and mega conferences. We live in the age where there are Christian books and Christian music you can listen to, Christian t-shirts you can wear, cheesy Christian movies you can watch, right? We live in an age where there's all kinds of stuff marketed to us, ready for us to digest and consume. Christianity is accessible at every corner. We've got DVDs and study guides and books and Christian websites. We've got curriculum down to each age level and grade level and age bracket. We've got studies separated for boys and girls. We've got youth ministries and children's church and children's ministries customized and tailored to children more than it has ever been in the history of the human race. We're doing more than we have ever done, and yet less and less of the church's children believe. Let me say that again. We are doing more than has ever been done. The church is working harder, spending more. There is more ministries tailored to youth and children than there has ever been, and yet we have less to show for it than the generations before us that had none of it. Do you hear that? So that would mean, I would say, something's off and something's not working. Or, or so let's ask this question. Let's step back and say, how did sons and daughters, how did young men and young women come to faith in generations before ours? 
Before there was Sunday school, before there were youth groups, before there was children's church and vacation Bible school and all the rest, and you could list the names of these ministries a mile long, how did anyone ever pass on their faith from one generation to the next? How did it happen? For thousands of years before there were any of these things, how did generations pass on their faith from one generation to the next? How, how could that have happened before there was Sunday school, before there was children's church, before there was Awana and, and programs that you could list all day? Look, we all love our children, right? We, we all do, and we all want the best for our children. If you're here and you're a Christian, I, I want to believe that your deepest prayer, your highest longing, your greatest aspiration for your children, above everything else, is that they would know and follow and love Jesus and receive him in their hearts and be a part of his salvation. I want to believe that more than anything else, you want to pass on to them. You want to give them that. More than good jobs and a good career and setting them up for a good life because Jesus told us, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So what does it profit you as parents if you've set them up with everything they need in life for eternal death? No, I want to believe that you want more than anything for your children to be recipients of eternal life. It would be better they had Jesus and nothing than everything without Jesus. So I, I want to believe that, and, and I know that to be true for you. And if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're a parent, I think you just being here shows that you're at least interested and curious about God and faith and religion. And if you've got children and you're bringing them, I, I think you would at least think, it would be good for your children to learn about God. It would be good for them to grow up going to church. And what better way than to bring them to church? We all want the best for the next generation. We all do. And here's what we have come to assume and believe is the best for our children, for the next generation. It'd be like this. If you want your children to excel at sports, you would sign them up for a league. If you want your children to get into a great college, you might find a tutor to tutor them in the SAT so that they could score real well. If you want them to learn uh, an instrument, you might hire a professional and see if you can get lessons for your kids. And so we, likewise, have come to believe that the best thing that we can do for the spiritual nurture of our children is to hand them to great professionals, right? We would say that the best thing that we could do is to find a great church, that has a great Sunday school program, that has great curriculum with great Sunday school teachers, all led by somebody who has initials after their name and studied about God and ministry. We would say in the last day when God calls us to give an account that what we want to answer back is we did the best we can because we brought them to church and found the best Sunday school or youth ministry that we could. Now, lest my tone betray me, I want you to hear this. Am I against Sunday school? No. I want you to hear that very clearly. Am I against church-based instruction of our children? No. We have it going on right now upstairs. Am I against finding some kind of great curriculum in order to instruct our children and pass along our faith to the next generation? No. We've worked hard to find a curriculum that was gospel-centered and that would pass along Jesus and his gospel to our children as they gather for instruction. 
Am I against trained Sunday school leaders who work hard and break a sweat in order to instruct our children well? No, we insist on it. And we command and demand every teacher to go through training before they teach our children. Am I against, you know, spending time and energy and investing into being equipped for ministry and, and learning so that you could lead God's people well? No, I'm still paying off seminary loans. I believe in it, right? But do I, hear this, do I believe that Sunday school or youth ministry or church-based discipleship is the primary means that God intends to use to pass on our faith to our sons and daughters? No, I absolutely do not. Right? Do I believe and do I want us to believe that God wants to use church-based discipleship or programs or youth ministries or children's ministries as the primary tool in order to bring our children to an awareness of who he is? No, I do not. I want you to hear this. This idea of bringing your children to trained professionals and dropping them off so that they can raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that is a brand new idea in church history. At least in Christian history, the idea of sending your children to trained professionals so that they can do a great job of instructing them in God and his ways is a new idea. And, and I want to suggest that God in his word, has given us something that God's people have been doing for generations. I want you to hear me carefully. Am I saying that God does not use other means? No. I want to use the words primary, not exclusive. I'm not saying that God cannot use other means and in his grace does not intend to use other means. Amen, he does. Many of you can testify from your own lives that he does. Many of you can testify about an influential Sunday school teacher that opened your heart and gave you a love for God. Many of you can testify to that. But does that, is that, in God's word, the primary means he intends to use to bring your children to an awareness of who he is? I would say no. And this morning I want to say, if that's not what he intends, then what is? What is the primary tool that God intends to use to bring our sons and daughters to faith in himself? What is the primary tool that God intends to use and is revealed in his word that he wants to use to pass on our faith to the next generation? To consider that, I want us to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's on page 97 of the, the Bibles in your pews. Deuteronomy, 97, Deuteronomy 6, page 97. As you turn there, let me pray for a moment, and then we'll consider God's word. Father, bless, O oh Lord, our time together. Bless my mouth and, and the ears and hearts and minds of your people. Grant to all of us humility. I pray that with all my heart. Grant me humility in my words, in my tone, that my words would not say beyond what your words say, that there would be no legalistic burden put on your people that are outside of your commands, that we would say only what you want us to say, that we would, I would hug tightly to your word and give humility to the ears and hearts and minds of your people that they would also not defend methods and ministries but rather hug tightly to your word and that you might show all of us in a gracious and generous way 
what might be done best for our sons and daughters, that they too might be recipients of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Please come and bless our time together by the power of your Holy Spirit, on whom we depend. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 is where I'll start reading. Just to give you a background, Moses, this leader of God's people. So you've got this people called the people of Israel, whom God has chosen, and they're God's people. And he's gathered all of them together, and he begins to say these words. 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. All right, we'll pause there. Someone in the New Testament once asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What does God require of man more than anything else? And Jesus, in answering that question, quoted back to Deuteronomy 6, to the passage we just read. And Jesus answered and said, the greatest commandment is what we read. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. In fact, Jesus boiled down everything that God requires of man to that one command. He said, you want to know what God requires of every human being? You want to know what it takes? Love God and love him with your whole heart and with your whole soul, with all your might and with all your strength, with all your being, with all that you've got, with all that you are. Love God. This is what God requires. This is the greatest commandment. And so in Deuteronomy 6, you are literally hearing the single greatest thing that God demands of his people to love God with all that they've got and now what is the very first thing they are to do with that great commandment what is the very first thing they are instructed to do with that greatest of all commandments they're to put it on their hearts and then verse 7 you shall teach them diligently to your children the very first thing they are called to do with this greatest of all commands, to love God with all that they are, is to pass that on to the next generation. That you are to diligently teach that to your children. So here's what I want to say. Parents, you are the primary tool that God intends to use to bring your sons and daughters to an awareness of himself. You fathers and you mothers are the primary, not exclusive, not only, but primary tool that God intends to use to bring your sons and daughters to faith in himself. Not the Sunday school, you. Not Sunday school teachers, you. Not the pastor, you. Not youth workers and volunteers, you. Not even the church, but your home is the primary means that God intends to use to bring your sons and daughters to an awareness of himself. Praise be to God that he uses many means, and the paths to Jesus are many, but he has put you in the lives of your children so that you might be the primary tool that God intends to use in their lives. Not exclusive, not only, but primary. I think I've made that point, right? You love your children. And so God is calling you to pass on this faith to them. 
Now, as I say that, I want to say this. Can you pass on Christianity to your children? If we could, we would. If I could make my son and daughter believe, I would, right? I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old. I often joke that sometimes I feel like Hannah is really born again, that the Holy Spirit lives in her because she couldn't possibly say the things and do the things she does as sweetly as she does without the Holy Spirit. And other times I feel like we got to call the church and exercise demons out of her because she is a spawn of Satan and I, I believe in total depravity more after seeing her, right? And we know that. If you could pass on Christianity to your children, if, if it flowed down through DNA or bloodlines, if they could receive it like the color of our hair and the color of our skin and eyes, we would all pass it down. But we can't. So as much as we want to say this morning, I, I need us to know it is impossible for you to make your children believe. Impossible. There is nothing you can do to make them love the Lord their God with all their hearts, with all their minds, with all their souls, and with all their beings. And so what does that do? It leaves you completely dependent upon God's mercy and grace. You've got no hope but to constantly plead, God, be merciful to my sons and daughters. Show grace upon their hearts. Open their eyes to see you like you open my eyes, like you turn these blind eyes open and these deaf ears open and this hard heart you made it soft and this dead soul you brought to life. So do that for my children. You have to come. Like you walked by Lazarus' grave and said, Lazarus, come out, and this dead man came to life. So call out to my son and to my daughter and make them come alive. That's our only hope. You've got no way to pass on Christianity to your children. They do not inherit it. Some of us think that all we've got to do is hand our children to a professional and we can answer before God. We're on one side. But some of us feel like they were born to me. And I'm a Christian, and I'm this ethnicity, and I'm this, and just like that, they've inherited Christianity. And neither extreme is right. What we are left to be is dependent upon the mercy and grace of God to bring our children to faith in Christ. Now hear that. But part of the mercy and grace that God has given to our children is you. He has not left them to a home where there is no gospel witness if they've been born to your home. Part of the very grace and mercy that God has extended to your children is to give them dad and mom. And if you believe, you are the means of grace that God wants to use to bring your sons and daughters to faith in Jesus Christ. Hear this. Is God gracious and good to take all kinds of people who do not know him and make them sons and daughters of God, sons and daughters of, of Abraham's line. He is. But he also intends to take sons and daughters of sons and daughters of God and make them sons and daughters as well. Does he love to save all people? Yes. Does he love to save the, the children of believers? Yes. You can have great hope that he loves your children. And part of his love is he gave you to them, that you might be the primary means in their life to bring them to an awareness of himself. Can we do it? Can we make them Christians? Of course not. Can God do it? Can he do it through us? Of course he can, and he intends to, and he wants to. 
He wants you, verse 7, to diligently teach your children. That word teach there almost is this word that means inscribe. As, as verse 6 says, this great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Put that on your heart, and then your job as a parent is to try and etch that into the stone-hard heart of your children so that he might make them soft and that they too might love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind. Now, what can you do that God might use your parenting in their lives? He goes on to say, look at what he says after verse 7. You shall talk of, to them. Talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. How do you do it? You talk to them. You tell them about God. You let God and his gospel be the oxygen of your home that they can't help but breathe that in. You let it be everywhere. In fact, he uses these pairs to try and get that point across. When you lie down and when you get up. When you're sitting in your home and when you're walking by the way. What's those pairs for? To say, at this time and that time, over there and over here, at all times, everywhere, you are to communicate to them who God is and what he has done. And, and if that becomes the all-consuming passion of your heart, they will see it. In Soul Care this week, we had a, a good conversation, a brief one about what are we to do for, the, for our children. And we said what, one of the things we do is intentional times where we sit them down and talk to them. Other times, it's unintentional. It's as you walk out and as you come in. It's as you're driving to soccer practice, as you're driving to, to school. At all times, you take every advantage to speak to them about God. That's what Jesus did with his disciples, with the ones he was called to train. Sometimes he sat them down for intentional times of training. Other times, he's sitting at a well and he talks to the lady about how he's the living water, because there's water right there. Or he's feeding people with bread, and so he starts talking about how he's the bread of life. He uses any connection he can to tell them who he is. So it is with us, so it is with you. That at all times, you are speaking to them about God and what he's done. Right? How do your children pick up that you guys are Phillies fans? It's just the culture of your home. The TV's on. They, they get a t-shirt. They, they're brought to a game. You, you scream when they lose. And they pick up on the oxygen of your home. And so likewise, Deuteronomy's saying, let God and his gospel and his wondrous deeds be so prevalent in your home that they can't help but breathe it in. I've said this before, but it's sort of like if someone asked you, when did blue become blue? When did, when did you become aware that blue was blue? You'd look at them funny and go, that's a stupid question. Blue has always been blue. There was never a moment where you suddenly became aware. It's just always the way that it has been. Wouldn't it be wonderful if when you asked our children, when did you become a Christian? When did you come to know Jesus was Lord? What if they were to say, I, I can't remember a time when he wasn't. I can't remember a time when he wasn't on the lips of mom and in the prayers of dad, when he wasn't the most important person in our home and lives. And that's just the way it's always been. Now, will they come to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus? Absolutely. But what if the oxygen of your home and the vision of your home was Jesus has been Lord from the moment I had my first memory? You are to 
be the primary means that God wants to use in their lives to bring them to an awareness of himself. Let me show you another passage. Turn to Joshua 24. This is page 128 of the Pew Bible. Joshua 24. I'll look at this quickly with you. Joshua is Moses' successor. So after Moses has died, a young man named Joshua takes over, and he becomes the one who leads all of God's people. And he leads them to the promised land, this land that God had promised to them. And they come to inherit this land, and now Joshua is at the end of his life. He's close to over 100 years old. He's near death, and he's got one last speech for his people. And so in Joshua 24, look at verse 14. They're living in the land of Canaan. Every neighbor around them is an idol worshiper. And now Joshua wants to call them to fidelity and faith in God and to stay true to God. And so this is what he says. Verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you grew up around church, you've heard that verse before. You've seen it on a plaque somewhere. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here's what I want you to hear. Joshua is calling this people. They're living in a land where every neighbor around them does not know God, does not follow God, has no thought for God. And he's calling this nation to please remain loyal to God, to choose this very day whether they're going to follow the patterns of the world around them or whether they're going to remain true to God in his ways. And then at the end, he pledges this, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, there's many things that could be said about this. Here's one thing that's interesting. When Joshua says this, he's about 110 years old. In fact, God's told him he's going to die. So that means when he pledges that he and his home, his family, and his descendants will serve the Lord, he's not going to be around to make sure that happens. He's committing his home even when he knows he won't be there to be able to make sure it is so. And what it, what it means is Joshua is so confident that the impression that he has left and the example that he has left for his home is such that he can confidently say, even after I'm gone, me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Even if all of Israel goes after the gods of our neighbors, I'm telling you, me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Every man here who's a dad should have his heart stirred and say, oh, that I would be like that. Oh, that I could stay. I know that the leadership I have exhibited in my home and the imprint I have left on my children will last beyond me. And I'm telling you now, even if everyone goes astray, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That whatever my house is going to be about, I'm telling you now, for now and the generations to come, it will be about God. That's what this dad says. And I want to call you dads and you future dads, you men. If, if our homes and you parents are the primary means that God, the primary tool that God intends to use to pass along our faith to our sons and daughters, you dads bear a primary role in that call. Not exclusive, 
Not only you dads have been called by God to be like Joshua and commit your home to him. And that responsibility starts and falls with you. This is why Paul in the New Testament will say to the church and to Christian men, Fathers, raise up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That is your call and your responsibility that you will one day give an account to God for. And this man Joshua has a view for generations downstream. And if you read towards the end of that chapter, you come to find out, just like it says, as long as Joshua was alive and his children were alive, all of Israel followed God. And you begin to think of the fingerprint that God wants to leave on future generations through your life. And you're either going to squander and waste that away, or your fingerprint is going to live long past your days. And, and as we talk about future generations, let me read you one last passage and we'll stop. Psalm 78. If you've got a Bible again, it's page 313. Psalm 78. Here's what he says, and I want you to hear it well. Psalm 78. He says, Give ear, O my people, to my teachings. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. So Psalm 78 begins with this man saying, listen, I'm going to tell you something very important, something you wouldn't otherwise know, and we know it, verse 3, because our fathers told us. And then verse 4 we will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded, hear this, he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but he keep his commandments. There's more we could read and more we could say, but hear this. Psalm 78 begins with this man saying, I want to tell you some things you wouldn't otherwise know, things that are wonderful and awesome, and we know them because our fathers told us, and we're not going to hide them from our children, but tell them to our children and to their children, and children yet unborn are going to know of the wondrous deeds of God and his work and his might. So this man has a vision, not just for his sons and daughters, but for generations downstream, that what we're going to do is going to be passed on from one generation to the next. This almost multi-generational vision that this father has for his children and children's children, that generations downstream, they will follow God as we have. That's, that's the vision God is calling us to. I was in... Hannah and Micah's room two weeks ago. They were put down to sleep, and so I just went into the room. It's dark, and I'm looking at my daughter laying on her little bed and my son in the crib. And as I began to pray, I was overwhelmed in praying for them. And I tell you humbly that God's spirit put in me, God, you have to save. You have to save. I don't want to get into eternity and not find my son and daughter there. You have to make them recipients of grace. 
You have to extend this grace to them that they too might believe in Jesus. I have great hopes for my kids. I want them to do well in life. I have nothing, we have nothing that we pray for of greater worth or value than, Lord, would you let them come to know Jesus and love Jesus and serve Jesus all their days and let their names be in heaven's book and let them be in heaven with us. And as I was thinking and praying, I was thinking, and, and one day Hannah's going to want that same thing for her kids. And Micah's going to love his sons and daughters that way. And so I, I began to pray, and God, their kids have to know you too. Because they're not going to want to be parents who don't have their children with them. And I'd imagine those grandchildren would want their children. And eventually, and this might be stupid, I began to just say, save every Thomas who is ever born. Make sure they're all in heaven. Let them all come to know you. And Psalm 78 is saying, that's, that's what you're praying. You're praying, God, let this fingerprint that I leave on these sons and daughters be passed on to their sons and daughters, and that to their sons and daughters. So a thousand generations downstream, they would be able to say, as one of the psalmists does, I have a heritage of those who fear the Lord. God loves to make rock-hard people sons and daughters of Abraham, but he loves to make sons and daughters of Abraham into sons and daughters of Abraham. And he wants to and intends to. Listen, we could keep going. I could, I could show you more passages. If I were to try and boil down everything that I want to say to you, uh, I found a children's book. So let me, let me read you one page of a children's book. All right? This book is called Our Home is Like a Little Church. If I could boil down my entire plea with you this morning, it's on this book. I was tempted to read the whole thing to you. But then I thought you would stone me. So let me read you one page, right? It says this. It says, my family goes to Sunday church. We see the pastor there. He teaches us the word of God and leads us all in prayer. And then it says, we pray and praise God at our house. He makes our family glad. Our home is like a little church. The pastor is my dad. That's my vision for Seven Mile Road. My vision is that every home at Seven Mile Road would be a mini church. And you dads, you're a pastor. You dads have been called to be the pastor of your flock. Every father here has been entrusted with a congregation. And that begins with your wife and your children. And you will give an account to God on the last day for how you pastored your congregation. Every home here is a mini church. And every dad is pastor. And so my call to you this day is lead your families well. Lead them. Lead them well. If your church is going to be a mini, if your home is going to be a mini church, then that means one of the practical things is you'll do at home what we do at church. So I, I would commend to you worshiping God as a family. When you come to church, and, and of course this is to mom and dad, but but I'm pressing it hard to you dads. When you come to church, what do you see? Whatever you see, you do that at home. You worship God at home. You say like Joshua, me and my house, we will worship the Lord. And so worship God in your home. When you come to church, here's, here's three simple ingredients. You hear us sing songs, we read the Bible and speak about it, and we pray. I want to say that to you. It's not complex. It's not magic. You don't need a special degree. Mimic in your home what you see at church. When you come to church, you see us sing songs. So sing songs at home. Dads, or I've heard you men lead. Let mom lead in the songs, right? 
Get mom to sing, and so sing at home. It doesn't have to be 10 songs. One song, sing it together, a great hymn of faith to God. When you come to church, we sing songs, so sing at home. When you come to church, you hear us read the Bible and talk about it. So at home, read the Bible. Read the Bible to your children. If you've grown stale and old with this book, your kids haven't. Because can you imagine, remember the first time you heard that God put Daniel in a lion's den and he came out alive and, and this boy named David beat the giant? I mean, those stories are incredible. I had one person tell me as they were leading family worship, their son opened the Bible and said, Spider-Man was a prophet of God, right? So there's some work to do, but right, you're, you're beginning to give them the grammar of the gospel. And they're beginning to let this book inform their entire worldview. Read the Bible with them. There's children books up, up, up till the sky of resources for you now, right? And, and if you want help, talk to us. We can, we can point you to some great resources. Read the scriptures with them. And then talk about the scriptures with them. What do you see your pastor do at church? You see him read the Bible and teach from the Bible. Pastor dads, hear that? You are to teach your children from the Bible. I can imagine, I want to hear this, I want to say this to you. I can imagine how intimidating that is. I'll tell you this, for me sometimes it's easier to preach from here for 40 minutes than to teach in the informal setting of my home. But that's God's call to us. And I want to tell you, God has not given you dads a call that he knows you're going to fail at. He will equip you by his Holy Spirit. And there are resources to help. Buy a good study Bible. The ESV has a great study Bible with notes underneath that help me as I try to preach to you. So that very resource is available to all of you as you try and teach your children from God's word. Upstairs in the lobby, as you go, we're going to have a, a book for all of you. We probably have enough for every family here. We have a free book for you to grab today on your way out that'll help you lead in 10-minute devotionals. One copy for all of you. I feel like Oprah about to give you free stuff, right? <laughs> Underneath your chair is a car. <laughs> we don't have cars, but we got this book that we can give to all of you. Dads, grab one and lead your home and worship at home like you worship at church and teach from God's word to them. And then when you're at church, you hear us pray. So at home, pray, pray, and, and put together all the things we've said about prayer so far. It doesn't have to be complex. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be impressive. It's got to be honest words to God. And pray in front of your children. When, when they're young, sit them on your lap and teach them what to pray. Tell them, literally whisper to them, and they'll repeat after you, right? They'll just mimic you and begin to learn to pray. We pray upstairs on Sundays before the service. So I'll give you one silly story about it that has nothing to do with anything. But Sibby was with us praying. And so I figured this would be a great moment to not only pray with our children, our children run in and out as we pray. So Hannah and Corinne were there as well. And so I figured I'm going to tell Sibby to lead them in prayer. And I figured this would be a double bonus. My children would learn to pray. Sibby's a, a newly married man. He doesn't have kids, but one day he's going to have to learn how to lead his children in prayer. So he starts praying. And he prays. O Lord God, who is gracious and glorious, creator of heaven and earth, who made all things. And the kids go, dear God, right? And I had to stop them and go, shorter prayers, real simple, small. And now Hannah and Corinne could follow right along. 
And as you keep doing that, do you know what? They begin to learn to pray. You who have older children can testify to that, how you've seen that happen, right? A few weeks ago, Vince had fallen. And when he fell, we heard that word, and many of us immediately ran to pray. So we were praying in our home. And, and you know, he, everything turned out, but on that night, we had no idea what had happened. And so we're pleading with God and saying, God, you have to make him well. You have to heal him. Please hear our prayer. And then Shainu said that Hannah was in the tub taking her bath. She had stepped out for a few minutes, and then she overhears Hannah going, you have to heal Vince, Uncle God. You have to. She's mimicking it, but she's learning to pray, as are your children. Pray simple prayers with them, and as they get older, they begin to see that blue has always been blue. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be impressive, but begin. And, and the benefit is that one day you're plowing this trail that hopefully these sons and daughters of yours will one day be brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Think of that. Your children will one day be brothers and sisters with you in the Lord. God is our Father, and all of us together is his children. If you're here and you're single, I am so grateful for how patiently you've heard God's word. I hope that some of these things will still apply to you as you seek to pray with roommates or friends or as it prepares you to lead a home one day and to do these very things. If you're here and dad is not present or he's an unbeliever or you're a single mom, I want to give you hope. Don't be discouraged. God is faithful and gracious to use your work. I want to point you to, in the New Testament, there's this man named Timothy, and he becomes this great pastor. In fact, he's probably Paul's most favorite friend, most trusted ally. He's the best man Paul has. And Timothy, it says, came to faith because of the witness of his mom and his grandmom. He's got this Jewish faithful mom, this Gentile dad who doesn't believe, and yet the witness of this mom in his life and his grandmom in his life is pivotal in making Timothy who he is. And Paul says, don't forget what mom and grandmom did for you. Your children are at no disadvantage because God has put you in their life to plow this trail for them, that they might follow your example of faith. And so lead, lead in whatever circumstances God has called us to. Okay, as you hear this, I want to just say this one last word, and then we're done. Who of us will hear this and not immediately feel woefully inadequate? And who of us will not immediately feel in our hearts, if they're soft enough, the cutting of God's spirit to say, I've, I've already failed a million ways. And if that's you, don't squirm and wiggle out from under God's conviction. Don't make excuses. Repent. Repent. Today, go to your wife and say, I am sorry that I have not led like God told me to lead. And go to your children and say, I am sorry that I have not led this home like God called me to lead. And repent. And, and wives, when your husband comes and does that, be gracious. God has forgiven you of so many sins. Be immediately quick to forgive him of his. And then together, plow forward in your home. God is gracious, and he will take our small and meager attempts to come and do what's right, and he'll bless them a hundredfold. He's gracious. If you've messed up, it is not too late. If you've got children or grandchildren, begin doing now what you ought to have done. 
Every man and woman here, listen to me, look today to Jesus. And as you look to him, you see the, the one man who did it right. All of us messed up. But when you look at him, you find the one man who led his bride perfectly. And you find the one man who took care of God's children exactly as he was supposed to. And when you see him hanging on the cross, you know what it is? It's the man we were supposed to be. It's the man you were supposed to be married to. That's who he is. And every eye should look with hope to him and say, you are what I was supposed to be. You were the husband who led your bride even unto death. And you were the one who took care of God's children even unto death. And put your hope in him, every single one. Stop trusting, abandon yourself, forget your mistakes, and look to him. And he can make us whole. And he is even now giving us his Holy Spirit so that we would begin to look more and more like him. Let's pray. O Lord, forgive us our transgressions, our debts. We owe. We fathers pray to you now and say we have sinned. We have neglected to do that which you have called us to do. God, would you please show mercy upon us? We have neglected to lead our wives well. We have neglected to lead our children well. We have thought that by handing our children to someone else, we can check off the box with you. We have found every excuse to wiggle out from what you have called us to. Or some of us, we, we were just unaware of what you've called us to. And so we didn't do it because we didn't know. But we come to you now as the men of Seven Mile Road and we confess. We are sorry for our transgressions. We are sorry that we have not led well here. And we turn to you and together we as a people, those who have been bruised and hurt under our lack of leadership come to you. And our children, and, and we know some of us from wounds from our own childhood, that we were not led well. And so together we're coming as a people who have sinned and been sinned against. And our only hope together is to look to you and to see the Savior who heals those who have been sinned against and forgives those who have sinned. We thank you that we find a gracious God who even now is tugging at our hearts through the Holy Spirit, not rejecting us, but pulling us to himself. And help all who feel that tug to come to you now rather than resist, rather than to make excuses or get defensive, help us to lay down our best case and simply admit our fault and to receive even now the mercy and grace that flows freely from the cross of Jesus Christ. You were the perfect husband, and you led God's children perfectly well. And so we put our hope in you. And as we look to you, we sense our own filth being washed away. We sense our own guilt being removed. We sense the weight of our failures being lifted as we're forgiven in Christ, everyone. And now, Lord, with love, put your Holy Spirit in us and commit us to doing what we ought. And when we stray, forgive us and call us back again. And when we do what's right and begin to see it happen in our homes, we will be sure to give you the credit. Do more than we knew to ask. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.